0: So the subject of the talk this evening is happiness, and I'd like to begin by inviting us to, um, to settle back and close our eyes and reflect a little bit on what happiness is for us, what comes up when we have this word before us when we have this subject, when we have this in our hearts, in our minds. So just for a minute or two, and I'll ring the bell. So, there are many mentions of happiness in the Buddhist texts. Within Buddha Dharma, there are many pointers to happiness. And that's that's really a good thing for us, uh, because in this life, uh, things are always happening to us that we have no control over and that um, we're sometimes confounded by, we're sometimes confused by. So how to meet these things. And I'll talk a little bit tonight about some aspects of happiness. There are these four pairs of opposites, and perhaps you've heard of them, they volley throughout our lives, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and ill repute, and praise and blame. And we could add uh, health and illness to that. Last year, my husband and I moved to Holland to live with his mother and take care of her She has Alzheimer's and she was at a stage of that disease where she didn't recognize how much her functionality had diminished and how little she could care for herself. But she didn't want to leave her home and she didn't want caretakers to come in for her. And a lot of um, the family lives in Holland, but they weren't in the position where they could move in with her and take care of her. But my husband and I were, so we did that. And that was um, quite an experience. It had many aspects to it. It was sometimes heartbreaking and frustrating, but happiness was always possible. And there were very many moments of happiness um, in those months that we lived there with her. And happiness from all of us. My mother-in-law was very happy that we were there um, many times in many moments. And the rest of the family was too. And I started to reflect on for myself what what was the quality of happiness for me in being in this situation, which wasn't easy. I mean, it's... um, There are moments that are really difficult in a situation like that. But I felt for myself that it's some being in tune with, in a moment-by-moment way, with awareness and mindfulness. And over the years, I've talked to my mother-in-law about meditation practice, and she's expressed some interest in it, and we've talked about it. Um, But she didn't ever say that she wanted to do it, and so I was reluctant to offer this to her um, out of respect. And also out of the fact that she was uh, in a vulnerable position where she wasn't always, she didn't really maybe know what she wanted uh, in the condition of Alzheimer's. But she had, um, she had a lot of anxiety, which is characteristic of that condition and nervousness. And so it, um, I would mention to her, we, we, we you have to get into a practice of always telling a person in that condition what you're doing and when. And I would always tell her when I would go do my meditation practice. And so she kind of, I got the feeling that she would maybe be interested in doing it, so I asked her that. And she said, yes, she would. Um, and so we started meditating together. And that wasn't, um, always easy either. Uh, it was a guided meditation and almost like a minute by minute guided meditation because part of this condition is a repetitive questions and like moment after, you know, you keep repeating, Do we do that or am I doing it right or are we breathing still and things like that. Um, but after the meditation practices that we did together, which usually lasted 20 or 30 minutes, she was clearly calmer and more at ease, even with the same condition flowing through her, This, the way the brain goes in that disease. So, this is the kind of happiness I'd like to focus on this evening. There are some words in the Buddhist texts and the suttas that are kind of cluster around happiness and translation, contentment, equanimity, and then on the sort of the negative way of putting those, not grasping or not clinging, or even it gets very specific sometimes, as in the metta-sutta it says, Not desiring well. And that brings up uh, a question that people often have, and that I wondered myself what's the relationship between desire and happiness? And desire often has a. It seems sometimes people think it has a bad connotation. Um, I was reading an interview with Mathieu Ricard. Who's um, Tibetan monk, um, born in France, and he has a new book out, which is titled Happiness, actually. And he was um, being interviewed about the book, and he made the point that desire is just a natural force, and in and of itself, there's there's nothing wrong with desire. Um, in in Buddha Dharma practice, we learn to make um, Um, wise discrimination, a discrimination between wholesome desires and unwholesome desires. And Ricard said it's, it's when desire, because we're not aware of it, gets entangled with craving and clinging it then causes suffering for us. But some of these words, when I look at them, I feel I have to make clear for myself A contentment is not a passive state. It's instead a mindful awareness of not craving. It's being aware of what it feels like in our minds and bodies and in our hearts to not be reaching out, to not be hanging on to whatever it might be. And it's from that place of awareness, that quality of contentment, that any action necessary can take place. I mean, even very quick ones. We are, we are open to responding then rather than reacting. And for many of you, I'm sure, who have some experience with this practice, metta and loving kindness come to mind. Because there we even say the phrases, may I be happy, may you be happy, May he be happy. May all beings be happy. And this is a strong practice that can really recondition our minds. And then there's also simply meditation itself. Just putting ourselves in a posture with the intention to quiet our whole beings can also awaken us to that natural quality that allows us to see and know what happiness is always here for us. We can follow any particular practice. We can choose an object of meditation or not. And that quality that allows us to tune into this happiness, mindfulness, will always be present. It's, mindfulness is always present. It's, it's as if we just don't see it. So we have to bring our motivation to awaken the mindfulness, to awaken ourselves. And perhaps it's helpful to remember, it is for me, that the function of mindfulness is to let us know what's going on at the interface face between our being and the external world. And mindfulness can do this in very precise ways, and there are very many states of meditation and mindfulness. And it can do it also in in more undirected ways. But the end result is that we know what's going on within. And knowing means that we have choices, that we can choose, and that we can choose happiness. So the bare attention aspect of mindfulness just registers what's going on without judgment. Without judgment, that in and of itself is such a relaxation that we already can tune into a quality of happiness. So we know without judgment what's arising and what, where we're meeting it loud noise, irritation. We just know that, and we can even meet that irritation without getting all wrapped up around that. We can just notice that our jaws clenched or our fingers are contracting, or just simply a a shade in the mind, a mental contraction around something that's unpleasant. And then the, the element of happiness is always there that we can shift. So this quality of mindfulness, this attention, it helps us through our minds and through our whole beings be in the world and know what's going on and know that we don't have to grasp on. And this mindfulness, it's all just a part of us. It's all natural. It's all there. We just need to keep our motivation. And not that that's always easy either, but it is doable. And there's another aspect of mindfulness that I want to touch on more deeply tonight. And that's in the sutras, it's called um, Sampajana. It's usually translated as clear comprehension. So there's this bare attention but where we choose is through understanding. And that also is a natural function of our minds. Just another aspect of mindfulness. It's the more active one, you could say. And it works with the bare attention. It supports our bare attention's clearness with a kind of a knowing understanding gestalt of our actions, of our purposes, and the way things are before us. So when we have some continuity of attention, we have enough space and even enough time to identify our purpose before we act. And even then, again, we can act very quickly. We can recognize our intentions and guide them. So intentions are at this level of when we understand clear comprehensions of purpose. And this all unfolds very naturally, too. Um, This is just kind of a map or an outline. But when we recognize our intentions, that's when we can guide them. Motivations are already at a level of understanding that's in our minds, cognitive. You know, it's at a thinking level. But our intentions come from a deeper level. And uh, when we clearly comprehend that, it's very helpful. Then there's... another clear comprehension of meditation and in brief that's being mindful in our everyday lives. It's sort of how can this how can we keep our motivation and our intention flowing together so that this mindfulness is can can be here in every moment, no matter what we're doing in these very circumstances. And it's kind of an energetic cycle the more aware we are through mindfulness, through the meditation practice, the more this, this kind of comprehension arises. We see that we can be mindful in anything, walking, eating, I mean, anything we do. It's all-inclusive. Even sleeping, if you really get into it. And then there's what um, Nyanaponika Thera, um, a monk who wrote some wonderful commentaries on the Buddhist texts, um, translates as the clear comprehension of reality, the way things are in in our lives as human beings, impermanent, unreliable, and impersonal. So those are also known in Buddha-dharma as the three characteristics of human existence. Um, Anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unreliability, suffering, stress, and anicca, kind of the the, non-existence of a permanent stable self. So this clear comprehension of reality which comes up with mindfulness is part of mindfulness. That's enabled when we have a direct mind body experience and knowledge that the way we usually look at things is diluted. That in fact there is nothing that lasts. And in fact are trying to hold on to things either by grasping them or by pushing them away is what causes us unhappiness, suffering. And the fact that we ourselves have no abiding self-entity. So here, in kind of this brief little outline, when we have this experience and can feel and know for ourselves this clear comprehension of reality, all the factors come together. So action, choice, are available to us. And again, it's not that we have to, you know, memorize these or outline them even in so many words. It's just to have some description of what's possible and how we can choose happiness as we just simply still bring ourselves to a meditative posture and intention and motivation. Then the natural forces of mindfulness arise and we move in the direction of happiness. And we see that happiness is already here. And it's no matter what we have or don't have, or what mind state we're in, or what emotional state we're in, or whether we're being praised or blamed. We really can live from that place. And that's a happiness of contentment that comes when we, when we feel whole and complete when we know that this is just what's happening now and I can be with that, even if it's my mother-in-law falling apart in front of me or whatever it might be. And this wants to express itself outwardly. There's a Belgian philosopher, Maurice Ameterlinck, who said that, remember that happiness is as contagious as gloom. It should be the first duty of those who are happy to let others know of their gladness. But I would say that once we are happy, others do know of our gladness. This is something we tune into as human beings. We know when we're happy and when we're not and when others are happy and not and we can sense that feeling. And when these feelings start to arise, we naturally want to share them. And I'm sure we've all had some of these experiences of happiness. The practices that we do are to cultivate them more and more, to know them more deeply, more completely. And it's a big shift. And even though a lot of human life is about being contradictory, there's this place where we can make choices without contradiction. And it's not the superficial choices about material things or emotional desires. And it's not the choices to wish away our pain and illness or our grief or even our unhappiness. When we simply allow our minds to still, when we cultivate happiness and mindfulness, many aspects which are part of happiness arise. Gratitude and generosity, compassion, kindness, patience, These are all part of happiness. And living from this place, as a motivation and as an intention, that's how we can hold the sorrows of the world and our own sorrows, in these wholesome qualities of mind. And these are the benefits for ourselves, and for others. So I'd like to end my words, with actually with a poem, which is Cheshla Melosha's words. And the poem is called, Gift. A day so happy, fog lifted early, I worked in the garden Hummingbirds were stopping over honeysuckle flowers. There was no thing on earth I wanted to possess. I knew no one worth my envying him. Whatever evil I had suffered, I forgot. To think that once I was the same man did not embarrass me. In my body, I felt no pain when straightening up, I saw the blue sea and the sails. So thank you for listening, and I would like to uh, to end this Before we hear from each other, which would make me very happy if you all would speak about happiness some, I'd like to just uh, do another minute or two of reflection on happiness. I'll ring the bell in a minute. It doesn't mean we have to go around singing, I feel
1: happy, I feel happy. <laughs>
2: yeah you mentioned kindness, which was one of the quali- things that came up for me when I was considering happiness and um I thought it was an un- i wasn't considering like other people's kindness you know on being on the receiving end and therefore feeling happy. it was a quality that more like that I possessed and projected when i when I was happy a natural mm mm-hmm something that happened naturally when I was happy and it was, I just thought it was interesting that that, um, that it was not something to, that, to receive and to cause happiness but to, but to project forth from a state of happiness
0: mm. thank you yeah, it, uh, it works both ways, actually. It's a kind of a, of a loop. I think it's positive feedback is maybe one kind of analogy for it. Um, there's um, one of the um, dwelling places of the heavenly beings in Buddha Dharma, are the Brahma Viharas, and one of those is mudita, which is the quality of rejoicing in others' happiness as well. So, um, and that can be cultivated too as a practice, and it's a very wonderful one to cultivate.
3: Mm-hmm. I had a question, have a question, about equanimity and happiness. And that has to do with, for me, happiness has an opposite, and perhaps equanimity doesn't. And can you comment on any state of being where there is no duality but greater stillness? And if so, would that be closer to equanimity or peace rather than happiness?
0: Well, um, that could—that <laughs> 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 uh, um, could be a, a very—that um, could be a long discourse. Um, <laughs> I think of that hap- the happiness that I'm that I'm trying to point to, and that I've experienced it. Um, it's a quality of 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 our being that um, that kind of meets whatever comes up with a kind of an interest, and um, so it. And I'm talking, I was particularly talking more about living our everyday life experiences, how to be in that way. And if we wanted to talk about, we can talk about equanimity in a lot of ways. And when um, it's possible to get into very um, deep meditative states where equanimity is a factor um, and states which... Um, which can have a kind of a non-dual quality. It's also possible just with simple, ordinary concentration in our lives, which we've all had the experiences of, to be uh, in those states which, once again, this is just language, so non-dual, it's, it's always tricky with language because language is inherently dual. There's just no way around that, you know. Um, that, that I can see in very many people that I, you know, great thinkers, kind of, yeah, you know, make this point, philosophers. Um, but nevertheless, we do keep trying to, <laughs> to uh, because that is a kind of a clue, like if we say that there's no sense of separation between us and the outer world. And so that's why I'm suggesting that these practices can, can keep us at that point where we meet where we are and the outer world is. And that can be a kind of a happiness, even, that is a happiness, even if it's difficult. Um, equanimity, I think that's, for me, it's fair to call equanimity a, a kind of a, a happy place. So it's how you want to define it. Partly it is definitional, and if happiness means to you that there's unhappiness, certainly that's the way our language is structured. But, but the Buddhist texts do talk about happiness. They talk of, you know, and they use other words too, like contentment. Equanimity is often used, particularly about a meditative state or the Brahma Viharas. In a way, it's also about, um, Equanimity is definitely about recogni- recognizing that that the world is um, the world is a lawful place, and recognizing the importance of our choices, and being at ease and at peace with those choices, uh, taking responsibility for ourselves. Um, and embracing that even. And that is pointed to as a kind of happiness. Yes, when we really take that responsibility that we have the choice to be happy or not, um, then we can live with equanimity. Thank you.
4: Yes. Part of my happiness is uh, to receive it and to give it away in just the state and the moment of being present and thereby realizing that there is no material and there is no spiritual there's just this oneness of everything sorrow and joy Um, you know crying for someone else being happy is being joyful Um, moments where people are laughing or I'm laughing or the flowers or plants that are beautiful the tangible moments of seeing, smelling, tasting feeling bring all kinds of senses of joy which um, take me into a state as you will, maybe an ethereal state of peace which is happiness and then it goes from that to serenity to and compassion and love and And just keeps evolving into itself, which is indescribable, yet tangible, in in, in the sense that I can feel it. And um, the more I embrace it, the more I give it, and the more I give it, the more I receive it, and it just keeps growing. When you laughed or you said something, I received it, and of course I'm compelled (laughs) to give it away. It's an energy that, um, it just is. And it's just wonderful to be here and to experience it with all of you. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
5: Yeah, I think uh, you brought up a very good point. I think or I feel that there can be a profound happiness independent of the people around me in seeing the flowers and seeing that there's life and everything. That there's grass coming through the concrete. I mean, literally, but also metaphorically. And that the world, with all its imperfections, is perfect. And that the waste that's happening, and that the destruction that's happening, is all part of a path. And that all sadness that we have and had is all part of a path. There lies profound beauty in that. And that the fluctuations of the mind The happiness and the sadness as they come and go are just fluctuations because everything is impermanent.
0: Thank you. Um,
3: Okay. Uh, When you first uh, suggested that we begin by thinking about what happiness was for us or being with it. Uh, What came up for me was um, kind of a a sensory, a memory of an experience, partly because I'm a very kinesthetic learner, (laughs) and which was that at one time I discovered During a very profound experience of grief, that kind of deep sobbing, that right at the center of that, there was a kernel of happiness. And it took me a few years to sort of integrate that, to just be with that. There was another experience where there was a a situation of great joy for me. And I sensed that there was a kernel of sorrow there as well. But it was okay. Um, In neither case did I really have a reaction. It was just very much a sort of experience. And I've, I've kept that with me. Maybe it's sort of an onion going in or out, and that each time you enter a state, there there is another state ready to arise within it, or something like that. But it but it came from that that feeling of just reaching the most fullness of some. Sorrow and happiness and sorrow and seeing and knowing there was a kernel of its opposite there. And not feeling any need to do absolutely anything about it, just knowing that it was there. Thank you.
0: There you have the non-duality and the duality. (laughs) there was someone else who had
1: yes I, I registered in the poem that you read that moment when uh, the author uh, was in the garden and the hummingbird uh, was uh, going to the flowers and the uh, the power of nature to suddenly awaken uh, happiness is always something um, that is wonderful and mysterious to me, how it just suddenly dawns on you the way the hummingbird click, you know, sort of throws your whole being into a sudden awareness of the vastness of uh, everything and the harmony of everything and the connectedness of everything. Uh, I think those moments, in my case anyway, sort of creep up and Pop like a bubble in my consciousness, and and so do they. Often for others, I guess you can tell by poetry, and I certainly don't want to analyze it, but just to kind of observe and be thankful that uh, there it is. (laughs) Thank you.
0: And thank you for your subject. That was a great subject. Well, you know, um, I see that it's um, time, and i I haven't taught here in a while, so I'm not remembering what the custom is, but um, I'm, um, but I think it would be nice if we uh, just sat stilled quietly for another minute and then go on our happy ways or Unhappy ways. May we be happy, may we be free.